Amen. Please be seated. The National Highway Safety Administration uh, estimates that drowsy driving was responsible for 72,000 accidents and uh, 44,000 injuries and 800 deaths in uh, 2013. And many safety organizations say that that's not the case. The, the number is far higher. Some estimate up to 6,000 fatalities each year may be caused by drowsy drivers. Falling asleep can be dangerous. But falling asleep can also be adorably humorous. I don't know how many of you have your, your children and stick them in a high chair, put some Cheerios or something in front of them, and they start to fall asleep, and they start going back and forth, and they're, they're trying to, you know, they're trying, they're reaching out to grab the Cheerios or whatever it is, and then they, they can't find their mouth. And one day, uh, Melinda, our youngest, was falling asleep over a, a bowl of oatmeal, and it's just, you can't help but watch. I mean, you, you, you kind of know what's going to happen, but you just, it's so humorous, you know, this way, and then, and then that way, and then finally, boom, right down, face in the oatmeal, and, and, then she, and then she looks, she's got this incredibly bewildered look on her face, like, what just happened? And then, <laughs> you would, you would think she would be wide awake, but no, no, she's, She's fallen asleep. I had one of my chaplain friends who every time he would teach at the a course at the chaplain core college, he said, I guarantee you before this course is over, you are all going to be nodding in agreement with me. <laughs> Have you ever found it odd that sometimes you can't sleep at night in your bed, but you can sleep in your chair with all the clamoring TV or people and noise all around you, and you just go, this is, this is nuts. Some people enjoy their finest sleep while the preacher's preaching. <laughs> and I don't begrudge them that. That's if they had a rough night and I can provide that, I am happy to do so. You know, we've all experienced this, this uh, falling uh, asleep, and we owe it to a thing called the circadian rhythm. In our brain, there's a little thing called the hypothalamus, and as a part of the hypothalamus, it regulates our sleep. And while it is impacted by uh, light and, uh, and, and darkness, ultimately, it's impossible to avoid sleep. can't do it. You, you will fall asleep. And uh, for most adults who have a normal sleep patterns, they, they're going to feel this thing kick in, particularly between 1, about 1 and 4 a.m. in the morning. The other time is, is uh, about 1 to 2 in the afternoon, right? So you can, you can feel this. And if you're lacking sleep, then this becomes a, a serious problem uh, for you, and those kick in, and when they kick in, they kick in really hard. So, you know, you could be at your desk and you could fall asleep or... Uh, or, or worse, back to the driving. Uh, you can have a driving problem there because you're drowsy. And we even see sleep issues in the Bible. Uh, Kings Saul and David, and remember Ahasuerus, they had really deep problems with sleep. But I think the most compelling example is found in Matthew 26, where we find that the disciples 
could not stay awake while Jesus prayed. And I mean, and they should have been tired. What a week it was. It was an exhausting week. Sometimes it's called Holy Week. Sometimes it's called Passion Week. Sometimes it's called Christ's Final Week. Whatever you call it, it was one of the busiest weeks in all of Christ's ministry. It was, in fact, exhausting, not only in His life, but also in the disciples' life. And not only because of the ministry, but there was another thing that was keeping them from getting sleep. And that was anticipation. Not only were the disciples filled with anticipation, but all of Israel was filled with anticipation. Now was the time the Messiah would reveal Himself. Now was the time that He would take action and overthrow the Roman yoke. The people knew instinctively that Messiah was among them. Did you know that immediately preceding the triumphal in, uh, uh, entry, uh, James and John's mother went to Jesus and said, and said Hey, uh, Jesus, like I know that James and John are really tight with you, so when you come into your kingdom, I want one to sit on the right hand and the other to sit on the left. You know, Jesus goes, yeah, I don't know. I don't know if I can do that. But the point is not that that he his response. The point is, is that she fully anticipated him as the Messiah to stand up and to overthrow Rome at that point and to establish his kingdom from the moment Jesus entered Jerusalem the previous Sunday the whole of Israel was in full anticipation. He is the One. Not a One. Not someone like the One. He is the One. He is the Messiah whom we have waited for our whole lives and our fathers' lives and our fathers before Him. Hosanna! Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna! What does that mean? Lord, save. And guess what? It's an imperative. Save now. That's what they expected. The people were excited. You know, undoubtedly, some of the people who in the Passover the year before had been in the feeding of the 5,000 were among these people. And you know what happened then? They uh, attempted to forcibly take and make Him king. And he slipped out and he got away. This time they would not be denied. He would be king. But that was Sunday. And Friday was coming. On Monday, Jesus staggered the leaders by cleansing the temple. He drove out all the buyers and sellers who were in the temple. And he said, my house should be called a house of prayer. But you have made it a den of King James thieves. ESV, robbers. And then the most amazing thing happened. Do you know what happened immediately after he cleansed the temple? You need to make this connection because it's absolutely vital to understand what happened during this week. And that is as when he cleansed the temple, when he cleared them all out, who came? The blind. The lame, read it in Matthew, read it in the other Gospels. Those who couldn't hear, the deaf, right? The lepers, all of those people, they came into the temple and Jesus healed them. 
Now, you can better bet the religious leaders were getting nervous about this. I mean, so what was it that John asked Jesus when he was prevent, uh, 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 incarcerated in that awful cell in a place called uh, Macarius? Barbara and I went there. We climbed up to the thing. Have you ever seen pictures of Masada? If you've ever been to Masada... Macarius looks like Masada almost exactly except for it's on the other side of the Dead Sea, on the Jordan side. That's where John was. That's where he was being held. We even went into a small cell that was carved out of that. Was that the cell John was in? Could have been. We don't know. No one will ever know. But I'll tell you what, it didn't matter because it was tiny and it was awful and it was cramped. And John, while he sat there, had all of this stuff in his mind. And so he tells his disciples, he says to them, go ask Jesus, are you what? Are you the one? Are you the one? Or should we look for another? Now you would think Jesus would be offended by this. You would think that Jesus would say, well, what? That's not what he says. He says this, in essence, do not look at what I say. Look at what I do. And then what does he say? He says, the blind see. The lame walk. Look, John, I I am the one. Even if my words don't demand that from you, my actions are actions that only the One, only the Messiah could do. And there we have it there. John seeking, are you the one? Yes, I am the one. Now the disciples, they were absolutely in awe that he had cleansed the temple. And as his first act, he took ownership of his house, was to do exactly that, was to give blind their sight, was to allow the lame to walk. And he cleansed all those who came to him there in the temple. They knew the time was near. Everything was moving to this particular point where the Messiah would overthrow the Roman yoke. But that was Monday. And Friday was coming. Then on Tuesday, Jesus entered the temple and while He was teaching there, got into a fascinating exchange with them. And they ask Him, by what authority do you do these things? Can you imagine that question? If I were to stand here and everyone who was blind and lame and leprous came to me and I healed them, would you come to me and say, uh, excuse me, uh, what authority are you using to do this? You would be absolutely in stunned amazement. But not these people. Their hearts were cold. As we heard this morning, we have no king but Caesar. So Jesus says this. He says, I will also ask you one question. If you answer me, I'll tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. John's baptism, where did it come from? Was it from heaven or of human origin? Now, this was a problem. So they had a little discussion together, right? And they said, hey, if we say it's from heaven, he's going to say, well, I mean, the duh factor is in effect. 
why didn't you believe him? But if we say is not, then guess what? There's about two million people out there ready to take them down because they all believe that John was a prophet. So they said, uh, we, we don't know. <laughs> Cop out. Then Jesus said, neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. And the disciples and the people, what they witnessed was amazing. It was astonishing. In fact, it was unthinkable because Jesus had in the temple stood up to the temple authorities and said, I'm not going to tell you by what authority I do these things, making His authority higher. And they were just amazed by this. He told the people and the disciples that His authority superseded their authority. And we learn that if you go down in the text a little bit further, we learn that they were seeking at that point to arrest Him and put Him in prison, but they couldn't. And it wasn't, they tried to get to Him, but there were just simply too many people. The time of His coronation was near. But that was Tuesday. And Friday was coming. Then on Wednesday, the Sanhedrin, they got together and they plotted to kill Jesus before the Passover. We've got to clean up this mess before the Passover, they said to themselves. Tuesday had simply been too much for them. And that Wednesday, Jesus was in Bethany. He was at Simon the leper's house. And he said, oh, Simon the leper. Guess who had, I don't know, maybe been a part of the healing ministry of Jesus Christ. And as he sat there, Mary came in and anointed his feet with costly oil. And the disciples were what? Praise God, he's being anointed for the coronation. No, 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 no. No, 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 no. They were what? They were ticked off. They were upset. They said that they were indignant. Why wasn't this oil sold and the money given to the poor? And of course, Judas, you know, it says we're told that Judas wanted, uh, wanted to keep the money for himself because he was the holder of the money bag. And that's when G Judas went to the Sanhedrin. It was on Wednesday that Judas went to the Sanhedrin and he said, Hey, you know what? Give me some money and I'll give you Jesus. little money, Jesus, no problem. I mean, Judas couldn't lose, right? Hey, if he was the Messiah, it would force his hand. If he wasn't, I'd get some money. You know, Judas was... Uh, his heart... His heart had a problem. But Jesus said still that day, given the Olivet Discourse, which is a fascinating... It's, all, it's known as the Little Apocalypse which means it's the little book of Revelation, right? And he gave that and he warned that his followers were going to suffer tribulation and persecution before the ultimate triumph of the kingdom of God. But they didn't get that. They were ready. They were ready now. But that was Wednesday and Friday was coming. And then on Thursday, the Lord celebrated the Passover with His disciples and he was overwhelmed with joy. I have eagerly... The word there is one of the most powerful words used in all of the Bible as it relates to the emotional state of a person. 
He wanted to celebrate this with them. But then, of course, sorrow took over as he sent Judas out on his deadly errand of betrayals. Even all the, you know, all the disciples got caught up in this piece because he says, one's going to betray me. You know, and I, I, I tell you, when you're in this small group of 11, they were all asking the same question. Is, is it high? Am I going to be the one that betrays you, Lord? Why would they ask such a question? Because why? They knew the revolution was going to happen within the next few days. They knew that Christ was going to make His move, that He was going to overthrow the Roman yoke, and there was no guarantee that they would make it through the battle. You've got to understand what's happening here. They thought this thing was going to come down and they were going to be in a war. Is it I? It's, am I can, I? can I withstand injury? Can I withstand torture? Can I withstand the, the point of the spear at my death? I don't know. Is it I? It's close now. Very, very close. But it's still Thursday. And for the disciples and for the people, they think the kingdom remains in their grasp. But Friday, Friday now is only a few hours away. So what will they do? Jesus sets a table for them and He says this, we will pray. And so He took James and John with Him. You know, I mean, perhaps they would sit at His right and His left after all. Took Peter and He went to a place called Gethsemane. a little garden across the Kidron Valley, across from the Golden Gates. I've sat there numerous times you can look straight across if you knew where the old golden gate was it lines up with the temple mount perfectly he was sitting there looking he was looking at the house of god sitting there praying gethsemane meaning oil press it was at gethsemane where the battle was to be fought and won we don't give enough Credence to what happened at Gethsemane. Everything that followed, the arrest, the crucifixion, the resurrection, all turned on Gethsemane. It's more important than we think. I want to ask you a simple question. And, because I, I want to justify why I just said what I did after I read the text. I think once the question is answered, it will become clear. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 26, verses 36 through 46. This is found on uh, the Pew Bible, page 832. In Matthew 26, verses 36 through 46, it reads this way, Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And He said to His disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch with me. That should stagger your mind. That the God, the Creator of the universe, 
was so troubled in this garden that the presence he coveted, he wanted, he desired the presence of people around him. And going a little further, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed. My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take rest later on. See, behold, the hour is at hand and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. So here's the question. You always have to ask yourself, who's the unseen observer or who's the unseen storyteller here? How did Matthew know this information? Let that just settle for just a second. How did Matthew know that information? Perhaps one of your first thoughts is, well, maybe Peter told him. Or maybe James or John. They were there. Were they? (laughs) They were sound asleep. Nobody witnessed. Nobody witnessed. What happened to Christ? Even if you give grace to them and say that the first episode they were awake or fell off to sleep while they could hear him off in the distance, that's not true for the second or the third. Who told the story? Yes, it could be that the Holy Spirit simply revealed it to Matthew, but then why would he also reveal it to Mark and why would he also reveal it to Luke? The simplest answer is that Christ Himself revealed the story during the 40 days from His uh, resurrection to the ascension. Where He taught. He taught the disciples. He encouraged them. He built them up. He told them the things that were going to happen. I mean, Jesus stayed on earth after His resurrection and before His ascension to demonstrate to His followers that He was alive. He was alive and to prepare them for the task of sharing the gospel with the world. Jesus wanted them to know what happened in the garden. But I'll say this too. Jesus wants you to know. You individually. He wants you to know what happened in the garden. And there's no other way than for Him to have revealed it. Jesus wants you to get it. So what is it that He wants you to get? He wants you to get that He was fully human. That He was fully righteous. And that He's totally committed to you. He wants you to know that He is a Savior who suffered. Think Hebrews. We don't have time to go there, but what a tremendous 
comfort that is. That he experienced aloneness. That he experienced trust out of that suffering and through that aloneness, trust in God and then courage to move on. I mean, this was an intense reality. It was a struggle for the outcome of all of history. It pivoted in the garden. Yet, we can say, but John, I mean, he was, he was the Son of God. I mean, come on, get a grip. The outcome was never in doubt. I don't know why you're worried about this. And other than the little bit of snark that I added, I, I actually would agree with that. I would. But at the same time, do not think for one moment that the struggle was not real, that it was not present, that it was not visceral. Do not deny the notion that Jesus Christ asked His Father to let this thing pass from Him. That should stagger you. Jesus knew who He was. He knew who the Father was. He knew the Father's presence, the Father's peace, and the Father's love. And you may know those things too, but you know what? Sometimes you may struggle. Sometimes things may come into your life and you say, God, I don't want this. Let this thing pass away from me. Take it away. I don't want it. The effect of this fully is that while we certainly do not fully comprehend and never can, probably not even in eternity, what Jesus went through, He understands at an experiential level what we go through. And He is there with us. His suffering not only purchased our forgiveness, but it abolishes this notion that we're ever completely and utterly alone in our grief. What the psalmist said, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. The scene in the garden is one of the most tender moments in the entire Bible. We see Jesus hurting and struggling and grieving as He considers the cost of doing God's will. I mean, and the cost of that is that the sword of God's wrath, think about this, the sword of God's wrath that was aimed at you was thrust into the heart of Jesus Christ so that you could be saved, so that you could have life, so that you could journey with Him in a way that honors Him. The pain and the agony was all part of the great redemption He purchased for us. But it's also this comfort that we have when we walk through dark and lonely moments in life. I mean, this is an important text. Tertullian, one of the early church fathers, he wrote this, Everyone has his private Gethsemane, and everyone has to learn to say, Thy will be done. Have you ever had a moment like that? Where you, you, just, you, you, you just knew in your heart, you didn't even have to think about it. You didn't have to consider it. You just said, I can't do this anymore. I, I, can't, I can't go on. I'm broken. I mean, and maybe some of you are there right now. 
The good news of this passage is that Jesus Christ not only paid for your sins, but it also means that He completely, at an experiential level, understands the pain you're in right now. He faced the loneliest moment that's ever been in the universe. Perhaps here, certainly, on the cross. And because of that, you are never alone. So Christ is suffering. He's groaning. Another text, I believe in Luke, tells us that He, he sweat great drops of blood. Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, there was hope. But it was Friday. Friday's here. Jesus is suffering. Satan is laughing. The disciples are scattering. One, at least, is denying. The women are crying. Death is close now. So close. The Pharisees can sense it. It's in their grasp. The disciples fear it. The demons cheer it. And our beloved Messiah can taste it. The kingdom is faltering. The masses are clamoring now, not for the Messiah as King, but for His death. It's Friday. Friday is pain. And oh, by the way, so is Saturday. And many of us live in Saturday as well. But it's only Friday. And Sunday is coming. J.R.R. Tolkien wrote, The veiling shadow that glowers in the east takes shape. Sauron will suffer no rival. From the summit of Barad-dur, his eye watches ceaselessly. Sauron and Saruman are tightening the noose. But for all their cunning, we have one advantage. The ring remains hidden. And that we should seek to destroy it has not yet entered their darkest dreams. Satan, you have to get this, Satan was completely, genuinely, honestly caught by surprise. Satan did not believe he was on some quixotic delusion making his move. He thought he had won. Victory was his. He thought that God our Father would, the thought that God our Father would thrust the sword of His wrath into the heart of Jesus Christ could not even cross his mind. And it never did. It never did. That our redemption was bought by the death of His Son. He had no moral capacity to understand. Satan, the world and the evils of it, to include what happened today, did not reckon for Sunday. They did not reckon that Adam's cry, my will be done when he took the fruit, would become Jesus' declaration to the universe, thy will be done. It was Friday. But Sunday was coming in all its glory. For on that day, the day we celebrate, on that day the Almighty One the Alpha and Omega, the author and finisher of our faith, the bread of life, the Son of God, our Deliverer, the Great Shepherd, the Great I Am, Emmanuel, King of Kings, Lamb of God, Light of the world, 
Lord of all, our hope, our peace, our Redeemer, the door, the way, the truth, the life, wonderful Counselor, mighty God on that day became the risen Lord and the resurrection and the life. Wake up. It is time. It is not time to slumber. It is not time to rest. Come to Him today. Allow the Son of God to rise in your heart. Confess your sin. Acknowledge Him as Lord and experience His resurrection power in your life. It may be Friday in your life, but by the power of the Word of God and the risen Lord, your Sunday could be today. This Sunday. Come to Him. Live for Him. Give Him what He gave you all your life. Father, we are so deeply in love with You that You gave Your Son for us. It's staggering. And that on this day, as earlier we remember that awful Thursday night and early Friday morning to the point where you went on to the cross at about 9 a.m. Lord, that doesn't stop there. It moves to your resurrection, to your ascension. Lord, that you are alive now. And one day, because you rose we too will rise. Because you know, one day we too will know. Because you love, we can love. Because you suffered, we do not suffer alone. We thank you, we praise you on this Easter Sunday for who you are, for what you've done through Christ our Lord. Amen.